Hey there, I'm Rachel Roberts, and this is Don't Sleep On It by HuffPost. Happy International Women's Day! Today, we're discussing something fishy going on with fish and the realities of the gender pay gap cycle and how women can break free from it. But first, you've probably been hearing about the debacle Democrats have gotten into with their response to Representative Ilhan Omar's comments about Israel. As Dems have struggled to find their way through this controversy, we wanted to break down exactly what's happening in this ongoing political pickle that has been a messy test for the new Democratic caucus and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This latest controversy started when Omar said at a town hall, quote, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country, unquote. Some saw the comment and a prior tweet from Omar implying politicians' support for Israel was, quote, all about the Benjamins as anti-Semitic. But Omar contends both incidents have been taken at their worst meaning and not how she intended them. Omar has been targeted with Islamophobic attacks, including a death threat. Still, some Democrats were fed up. Last weekend, a small group of senior lawmakers pushed Pelosi to hold a vote on a resolution condemning Omar's statement. And with lawmakers out of town, Pelosi decided to hold a vote on the resolution without consulting the rank and file. That, in turn, angered a number of other Democrats. Meanwhile, Republicans have leapt at the chance to paint Omar as an anti-Semite on par with the GOP's white supremacist House member Steve King, even if Republicans know its false equivalence. Most significantly, the party infighting centered around the resolution itself. Some Democrats see it as an indirect and unnecessary slight at Omar that plays into Republicans' hands. Other Democrats see it as a common-sense response to Omar's recent comments about pushing for allegiance to a foreign country. Thursday, House Democrats did vote on a resolution that condemns anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and white supremacy. But missing from the resolution was the name of the member inspiring the controversial vote, Representative Ilhan Omar. The vote Thursday seems to be a middle-ground approach. It's not about her, Pelosi told reporters Thursday morning during her weekly press conference. And it's true, the resolution is written broadly enough that it isn't a direct rebuke of Omar. But it is unmistakable why Democrats are holding yet another vote on this topic. And a new months-long investigation by ocean advocacy group Oceana finds widespread and persistent fraud in the U.S. seafood industry. The organization tested 449 fish from more than 250 restaurants, seafood markets, and grocery stores and found that 21% of samples were mislabeled. In two restaurants in Florida, cheap imported Asian catfish and spiny cheek grouper, a species found only in the Indian Ocean, was sold as hogfish. In Washington, D.C., sea bass on a restaurant menu turned out to be farmed tilapia. And at a grocery store in Springfield, Virginia, Greenland turbot was labeled as Alaskan halibut. You get the picture. The extent to which fraud continues to occur in U.S. restaurants and markets is shocking, said Kimberly Warner, an author of the report and senior scientist at Oceana. She told HuffPost, quote, Finding domestic seafood that has been swapped out with foreign seafood seems particularly troubling as we're trying to support our domestic fishermen, unquote. Mislabeled seafood is actually a rampant problem around the globe, one that Oceana has been actually looking at for nearly a decade. 
In a 2013 analysis, the group found that as much as one-third of fish sold in the U.S. was mislabeled. In its new analysis, Oceana calls for regulations requiring that all domestic and imported seafood be tracked from the time of catch to when it's sold at market or served in a restaurant. While there's plenty of fish in the sea, you might think twice about the ones on your plate. And with it being International Women's Day, we're diving into how the pay gap is a cycle that women get trapped in and how to stop it. By now, you're most likely familiar with the disparity in wages between men and women. However, it's even worse than you thought. The standard wage gap measure put out annually by the Census Bureau currently shows that women make 79 cents for every male dollar earned. Earnings are even lower for women of color. But the statistic misses the bigger picture, said economist Stephen Rose, who co-authored a report released in November by the Institute for Women's Policy Research. The report concluded that the census data only considered those men and women who actually worked full-time in one given year. But women are generally less likely to work full-time consistently throughout their careers. Viewed in this more longitudinal way, women made just 49 cents for every dollar a man made on average. Even women who stayed in the workforce for the entire 15 years the researchers examined faced an enormous pay gap, 67 cents for every dollar a man made. Negotiation does have something to do with it. Linda Babcock, an economist who researches gender differences in negotiation, said that women can lose hundreds of thousands of dollars through not negotiating. But to break that cycle, people must first realize that they are being underpaid in the first place. Not to mention the several cultural factors that can constrain women from speaking up and the fact that women experience a pay gap from the moment they graduate from college, which often puts them behind. While negotiating is one thing, it's not up to employees to eradicate this disparity. So what does ending the pay gap look like? It starts with questioning the very idea that the workplace is a fair arena for all. One example, employers asking prospective hires what they earned at their previous jobs, said Katie Donovan, the founder of consulting firm Equal Pay Negotiations. Donovan said that the question can be used to weed out candidates quickly. Putting a number in an employer's mind can anchor them to it. Once employers know that you were previously lowballed, they can lowball you too. Being underpaid once should not sentence you to being underpaid for the rest of your life. And we all have a stake in changing this cycle. For employees, it can mean raising questions about the neutrality of the pay process. What is the average salary for men at this company, you could ask. Hearing these kinds of questions brought up by job candidates and employees can alert human resources that the issue needs to be addressed, Donovan said. For managers, it can mean limiting subjective hiring and compensation language like the salary question. For policymakers, it can mean getting behind legislation like the proposed Federal Paycheck Fairness Act, which would let employees talk about their salaries without facing retaliation from bosses and would bar employers from using salary histories in pay decisions. Employers would also have to explain gender pay disparities and prove that they are not due to gender. To note, a number of cities and states, including Massachusetts, New York City, and California, have passed measures barring employers from asking about salary history. 
More than 50 years ago, President John F. Kennedy signed the Equal Pay Act, which prohibited discrimination on the basis of sex. Although it's one thing to know that women and men doing the same work should be receiving the same compensation, it's another to actually enforce it. Until that promise of equality is realized by vigilant policymakers, employers, and employees, the pay gap will continue to be an injustice that women will need to reckon with. And here's what else you shouldn't be sleeping on. A federal judge sentenced former Trump campaign chairman and longtime Republican operative Paul Manafort to less than four years in prison on Thursday in a case that grew out of Robert Mueller's special counsel investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. The prison term, handed down by U.S. District Judge T.S. Ellis III in a packed federal courtroom in suburban Virginia, is the first of two sentences for Manafort, who turns 70 next month. For more about how these stories develop, and for more from HuffPost's International Women's Month series, What Women Want Now, head to HuffPost.com. And now, you've really got to get up. Bye!